0: In a wide-ranging interview focused on the coming U.S. presidential election, Peter Isaacson and host Vikram Zuchi unpack what choices American voters truly have. We'll explore the often pernicious role of the media, the corporate interests that guide it, and how debate has been stunted given the vested interests that interplay within this arena. All is framed by what is appearing to be an American election unlike any other. Hi, Peter. So nice to have you here on the Big Turtle podcast. Well, thank um, you, Vikram. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here. I've been reading your columns and essays in Fair Observer um, for, for, for several months now. And, uh, you know, I invited you here so we could discuss some of that because it's very relevant to what's happening now uh, in the run-up to the American elections, especially. And, um, and what, what it implies for the rest of the world. So uh, uh, before I, before we go into uh, uh, that, the meat of the discussion, would you please introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Okay. Yes, I'm. I'm. Um, uh, I suppose a strange character. I I'm, uh, I'm an American. I was born and raised in the United States. Uh, grew up in. I was born in Chicago. Grew up in in California in L.A. Um, I did my first uh, my undergraduate degree at, at um, UCLA, and my and then I did my, my graduate postgraduate work at Oxford University in England. Um, that kind of hooked me on Europe, and I really became a European. I uh, I ended up working first working and then living permanently in in France and um, got involved mainly uh, throughout my career in the field of training, uh, adult adult training, uh, mainly corporate training, uh, and especially focusing on intercultural phenomena. Intercultural training, which is really intercultural management and commun- communication training, uh, my background as as a student at both UCLA and Oxford was in literature and even not even contemporary literature, but sixteenth seventeenth century literature right. uh, which uh, really had an enormous influence on everything that happened afterwards because uh, the focus was on how people use language, which is what li- literature is about, and history and what happens over history and things like worldviews, which is something we studied when, when we studied the 16th century. Right. We said, well, how, how did people think in the 16th century? Right. It's not just how they write, or what they write about it's how do they think what's what's their image of the world, and everything that goes on in it and that 's something that's not uh, I feel has been neglected and it's it's something that obscures what we try to learn about ourselves today, especially through the media, because the media have become specialized in forgetting history everything's immediate everything's now everything's um, analyzing what somebody said or did, uh, not in terms of where the background is, but uh, in terms of what their intentions are. And intentions are very difficult things to, 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 to seize, uh, to seize upon and, and analyze. So um, what I've been doing in the last three years, I mean, I've been, I got into journalism with Fair Observer about five or six years ago, and then I propose, and I'm on, actually on the board of, of uh, Fair Observer. So I'm very much involved in this whole, um, this whole operation, this whole uh, endeavor, uh, which is very particular because we're obviously focused on crowdsourced journalism, which is something that obviously is very different from and seeks to be different from mainstream media. So one of my jobs, um, and I really concretized this by suggesting that I, I could write a, a daily column, which I called the Daily Devil's Dictionary, right. um, which looks at what other people say, what political figures say, what media says, what entertainers, anybody who's in the public spotlight may be saying how they're using whatever their developing as discourse uh, to represent something they either want to achieve or something they believe and often which they don't they believe without even knowing they believe it. So I go back to this context of worldview and um, part of my everything I've been doing is uh, to examine how the worldview we have today and the worldview communicated through the media plays out. So that the devil's dictionary, the daily devil's dictionary. I borrowed the concept from Ambrose Bierce, a great journalist from the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, the idea is to is really to deconstruct the language people use. And that my yeah, my mission is to help understand what's going on when all these famous people, whether they're politicians, technologists, entertainers, uh, or or media people, uh, what they're trying, what message they're trying to get across beyond the obvious literal message, which usually corresponds to some kind of economic interest. Um, I should say that uh, I've spent 40 years of my career in France. I live in France. Um, I've been living in France um, for over 40 years. Um, I've been basically involved in corporate training and intercultural, inter, the intercultural question, how people of different cultures communicate w- with each other or fail to communicate with each other because of their own worldview that comes from their culture. So that's who I am, basically.
0: Okay, excellent. And um, how did Fair Observer come about? What led oh, to the formation of Fair Observer? Because obviously it was started as a reaction to what you saw was missing. Okay, well, I'm, not, I'm, I,
1: I, 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 I'm not a founder of um, Fair Observer. Um, I, that honor belongs to Atul Singh. Uh, an Indian who um, was educated in India, but also in the UK at Oxford University and uh, in in the US. Um, and as someone who's been around, who's been involved in the history of different nations and different regions of the world, uh, and someone who's basically curious and at the same time absolutely involved in developing critical thinking, Uh, he founded uh, Fair Observer with the idea that we need something to counterbalance the kind of things, the kind of messages which are really coded, often coded and stabilized messages um, that we get through the media Uh, that are approved, generally approved ways of thinking. And that's that's what a worldview is in, in many cases uh, with, throughout history. It's not just today, uh, but a worldview and a cultural perspective is a set of ideas that are considered, uh, that are shared and considered by most people to be normal, acceptable, and to offer a guideline to understanding the reality around them. Unfortunately, the guidelines are often based on somebody's hidden interest. And that's where we need to be vigilant. Um, that's what I try to do in my daily columns, is to, is to find some perspective in what something that's been said and quoted in the in the media uh, to, to, to understand what's behind it and how it fits in with somebody else's worldview. Just to give an example, today, uh, I haven't even looked at the the, the published article, but um, it was about, uh, and this is often one of my targets, the New York Times, um, the way they reported on Pope Francis's encyclical that appeared on Sunday, uh, uh uh, analyzing what's wrong with the world uh and uh stating things really extraordinary such as um that the the catholic position on um a just war is should be overturned the traditional so this is this is a, a scoop this is a revolutionary Act by a sitting pope who's saying we're calling into question our old world view, which said that uh, all you need to do is is point out why your war is justified and you go to war. Uh, and he didn't state it in those terms, but he said it in very uh emphatic terms, he said, no more war. There is no reason to justify war anymore. So this is this is one of the principal things in the encyclical. And in my article today, I said, well, what does the New York Times have to say about this? Nothing. They have to, they, they talk, they do have an article about the encyclical, but they don't talk about what the Pope said about war or what he said about the economy, because at the same time, he, he criticized the neoliberal economy. So this is just today's example, but this is what I do, whether it's Elon Musk or Trump or uh, Boris Johnson, or Bolsonaro, or Bolsonaro uh, it, it doesn't matter. And anyone who, has, who comes forward with their interpretation of what's going on today. And that's what they do. That's what the media is all about. It's telling you what to think. Um, uh, it's important to see what they're saying you, they don't want you to think about as well as what they want you to think about. And, of, of course, um, you have things like uh, the Russiagate uh, thing, which I know yeah. you're, you're curious about, yeah. um, which has been going on for four years. Yes. And, and which is a kind of... A kind of um, social comedy as far as I'm
0: concerned. I see, Um, but what about, I mean, they keep talking about this evidence, right? And and, and collusion and it's, you know, it's on and on and on. It goes on and on and on. I mean, what do you think about it? Is it?
1: Well, there's always, first of all, evidence is everywhere. If you want evidence, you'll always find it. Um, uh, It depends what you want the evidence for. Uh, the, uh, collusion is something else you can always find about find find where if you're looking for it, because um, there are uh, there are interests that converge between different groups of people. Uh, but um, if you're if you're talking about the Russia Gate, there is no evidence, and we we know that. I mean, the Mueller report didn't produce any evidence. What it did kind of show is that um, there is probably an interest on the side of of Putin and Russia um, to have someone like Trump messing about with uh, American politics um, rather than uh, a Hillary Clinton or a Biden today. I I have no idea what what they're doing. and I haven't, I'm not an investigative uh, journalist, so I, I, I don't have a handle on what's actually taking place in the background, but everyone who has done that has shown that there is no evidence. What there is, is presumptions of a convergence of interest. And when you can establish that, and that's easy to establish, and it's true, you simply have uh, what I call human society. Because in human society, people uh, according to their profile and their and their their, their their profession and their vocation, they have interests, and they may those interests may for any direct or indirect reason um, correlate with somebody else's so um, what's happened I mean with the whole Russiagate thing was to say, well, we know that Putin would have liked um, something that would disturb American politics. True, absolutely true. And we know that Trump has disturbed American politics. Nothing could be more true. So there's collusion. But that doesn't that, you know, that kind of reasoning doesn't do, doesn't uh, prove any kind of co- collusion. It proves uh, uh, simply that. Um, there may be, and we don't even know why or what the implications are. There may be some empathy between uh, what one person does and what another person does. I don't know if that makes sense, but yes, uh,
0: yes, 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 absolutely. Well, no, come down to the to the crux of it. Do you believe Russians have compromised? On, well. <laughs> uh, what I believe is that we live in a, in a world
1: of global communications, which the U.S. has created, and it's an admirable achievement, uh, where anybody can send any message they want to any group of people. Now they can micro-target any group of people they want because the technology is there and because there are, there are companies like Facebook that they can monetize that. So what what it means is that anybody who and what I know about politics, I grew up in in democratic politics. My mother was a pillar of the Democratic Party in California. Uh, she worked with um, uh, closely with Bobby Kennedy, Jess Unruh, uh P.R. Salinger, and I. I got to know most of those people as well. Um, uh, I worked for Jerry Brown at one point, the the, the former. Twice former California governor. I, governor. I was on his very first uh, campaign, where there were only four people on the campaign. I was a student at the time, um, but um, uh, so I've I've seen politics from the inside, and politics is all about how to manipulate the message uh, and how to how uh, using any means available, and really constantly searching for means, um, obvious means and less obvious means to get people to believe something that they may not have be- wanted to believe at the beginning. Uh, so if if Putin does it, if Russians do it, and, and that's the other ambiguity about the Gate thing is that um, everything that comes from Russia is attributed to Putin, which is ridiculous. Uh, because there are lots of Russian people who have interests, and often they're, yeah. they're purely commercial interests. They can sell something through the web, make money, which most people are interested in doing, and uh, and, it, and and the easiest thing for them to do is to interfere in American election psychosis uh, and, and so, so they they enter into that game. They make money out of it, or they get some of political effect. They may be interested, or, or may not be interested. And then we say, "Oh, that's Putin." Well, that's that's absurd. Now, whether Putin approves of it, whether he thinks it helps him or not, is another question. Uh, but it seems to me totally immaterial uh, because that's. You know, that's the way leaders work. They, they, they expect that they'll get help from wherever, they, wherever it comes.
0: Exactly, exactly. So now, uh, 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 Peter, I want to get to something that's been on my mind for years. And it's, again, uh, you know, it's something that often you don't see uh, in the mainstream media, but it's all over social media. And it's one of the reasons why... The mainstream media is losing credibility. <laughs> it's because, you know, more and more people can see how it's a two-headed snake. You know, you've got the Dems and the Republicans and people are calling it a two-headed snake. And there's different ways to frame that, you know. Um, now, Glenn Greenwald, he, he writes about this a lot. You know, he talks about whether it's a military industrial complex or the deep state or the national security state. So we've got a lot of literature coming out. Um, And we had this um, uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, his his 1961 warning about the, the menacing joint power of the US military and the private arms industry. And this was before Vietnam, the Reagan Cold War, uh, culture and 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 uh, and 9/11 and the and the militarism that happened 9/11, where you know, I mean, we're talking about this this global the dirty wars, the bipartisan war, the endless war, you know, that Jeremy Scahill covered in Dirty Wars, Obama's Dirty Wars. So it seems yeah. like. You know biden he was he was talking up uh, the war with Iraq five years before the invasion. <laughs> and you know so you've got this uh, American taxpayers since 9-11 have paid six point four trillion dollars. You know it's like um, we've had uh, as the united states this is a, a, a paragraph from Truth Out," as the u s marks nineteen years. Since 9-11 terrorist attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people, a new report finds at least 37 million people in eight countries have been displaced since the start of the so-called global war on terrorism since 2001. The costs of war project at Brown University also found more than 800,000 people have been killed since US forces began fighting in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, and Yemen at a cost of $6.4 trillion to U.S. taxpayers. You know, and, and, and David Wine, the, the, the co-author of the report, he's, he's an anthropologist. He says, you know, the U.S. has played a disproportionate role in waging war, in launching war, in perpetuating war over the last 19 years. Now, that's just post-9-11. You know, I mean, look at everything that's happened before that. You know, the Bay of Pigs, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the, 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 the Iran Contra, I mean, it goes on and on and on. So this is where, you know, when people like you have people like Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone comes out and says that, hey, listen, you know, anything that comes out of the intelligence community is highly suspect. Because these guys have been lying to the American people and to the world for as long as you can remember, and it's been documented. I mean, some of the world's best journalists have dedicated their lives to to this stuff. You know what I mean? And somehow they never make it to the front page of the New York Times. Now, this is what this is. The New York Times (laughs) is seen as the Bible of you know of what. Passes for good journalism and respectable and reliable journalism. But the New York Times is also pushing this whole theory about Russia, you know, as if, as if, as if, you know, Americans are not, you know, as if you need an external party, you know. I mean, Americans have, you look at Russia or China, the sins of Russia or China, and they pale in comparison to what the Americans have been up to. You know. Yes, yes so it's, absolutely. So you get this whole thing, and you, you're like, and there are people, there's so many people now, you know writing Chris Hedges, John Pilger, uh, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, Oliver Stone. Um, it goes on and on. you know recently there was an The Intercept did an article on Bolivia, and how okay. you know they they've been destroyed around. Bolivia, yeah. Yeah. And, you know for, obviously for their resources. And, you know, they, they kicked that Evo Morales, the first indigenous leader. And uh, now they've got a, a U.S., uh, a, a, you know, like a right-wing Christian, uh, very friendly to U.S. geopolitical interests.
1: Well, it, it, it met with Elon Musk's approval. So it must has, be good. It must be good, yeah, because Elon <laughs>
0: Musk is exactly. And uh, there was that article, right? It came out and... Um, and then, you know, let's, this goes on and on. I mean, look, Snowden, he had to flee to Russia because he knew what would happen if he stayed back in his own country. You know, after. And now, it was, now it's been deemed illegal. The guy's still in Russia. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Um, meanwhile, the Russians are painted as the worst enemy. I mean, since the Cold War, it still goes on. And it justifies U.S. imperialism in Afghanistan even though the Russians have long you know, gone from Afghanistan. And um, Julian Assange, what's happening to him in London right now, he's being treated like a dog, you know, literally. If he gets extradited yeah. to the US, he gets 175 years. Yeah. And that's, his, that's the sentence they're looking at you know, for Julian Assange. Um, so this is the empire stripped naked. You know, empires and Obama is equally culpable for uh, as you know the people that they they despise on the other side. So I know I've been talking a lot about this, but I want I'd like you to weigh in because uh, uh, a lot of your literature and your journalism is uh, yeah centered on on these things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I I totally agree. I mean, that that's uh, we're looking at a very powerful machine and. Uh, it's not just a question of who uh, which officials uh, wield what power and are capable of uh, delivering which messages, or even of who can invade or, or discipline different countries to make sure that they they told the line uh, which uh, makes their elites. Pleasing to to Americans and, and makes their lives easier and their economies easier for Americans to 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 uh, manage. Um, it goes beyond that. It's uh, it, it goes it, it it's it's part of this worldview. And when when you talk about the role Russia's been asked to play, not as a player but in the minds of Americans, um, uh, yeah, it comforts my my point about cultures, and especially political cultures, These cultures are, are very complex things, but political cultures are less complex. Um, and so it comforts my point about a, an imposed worldview in the sense that the ni- it worked very well in the 1950s to consider the Soviet Union the enemy capable of everything that was evil in the world. And uh, it was an easy thing to develop because they were communists. They believed in something that was different, which actually encouraged Americans to to believe in something which was unreal. And that is uh, that capitalism is a way of life. It's not a way of life. It's a a way of handling money uh, and, and, and and organizing resources, um, it's not a way of life. There are many ways of handling money and and debt and and resources, uh, and many people have great ideas about that, uh, including the late um, uh, David Graeber, who's w- written wonderful stuff uh, in the past. Uh, he died in in September at the age of fifty nine, <laughs> um, and he's done he's done a lot of. Uh, he in his lifetime, in his short lifetime, he did a lot to expose the, um, the, the the mechanisms in this worldview. But to go back to the Russia thing, in in the U.S., when I grew up, we were told—I mean, we were—it became yeah—it was something that seemed a natural part of the world that Russia was evil because they were communists. Um, so the i the, the the reflex that Russia is bad, should have disappeared in 1991 when the Soviet Union finally crumbled. Um, But uh, it was a really weird period, the Clinton years, when people didn't know what to think. Uh, They thought they had conquered the world. It was the end of history. Fukuyama told us that. Uh, And that uh, we were moving into a an age of liber- a liberal economy defined by the practices in the U.S., which meant McDonald's in every in every uh, neighborhood and uh, Starbucks and, and all that. And um, but we didn't have an enemy, so and and yet we didn't manage to do it. We didn't manage to to we did a good job of getting McDonald's and Starbucks. Going practically everywhere in the world, including communist China, where 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 uh, you you can find it, it. It's almost like in certain parts of America. But um, so we didn't manage to do that. Uh, yet we had to start. Uh, when I say we, I mean Americans had to start. Thinking about why they hadn't achieved the, the utopia, the end of history, uh, that they were destined to to bring to the world, and uh, that's when uh, the famous quote I love to to to, to cite uh, from George Bush in his presidential campaign, George W. Bush, in his presidential campaign in in uh, in two thousand. When he said, um, "When I was coming up, uh, we knew who the enemy was, we knew who they were, uh, but there's no them today, uh, so we don't know what to do with that." He didn't. He, he was actually less grammatical in in his uh, in in the way he framed it than than I've. And I'm I'm trying to paraphrase it, uh, which means that you can easily find that quote in any collection of Bushisms, where there are really funny things he said. But what he said was basically true: is that uh, in 2000, so a year before September 11th, uh, Americans were disturbed by the fact that they didn't have an enemy. Of course, Samuel Huntington had prepared the ground by by. Uh, uh writing about uh, the clash of civilizations um uh, but uh, uh september 11th ended up as a, a kind of miracle suddenly that confirmed Huntington's thesis but that just led to the worst quagmire we we you know we'd had the wonderful quagmire in vietnam but that was just a little country uh um uh, and it spread over to Cambodia and Laos, so, okay. So it was pretty messy. But um, uh, when we got to um, Afghanistan and then Iraq because of its famous weapons of mass destruction, uh, yeah. we, we, finally had, we finally had an enemy uh, that we could identify. And it so happened that that enemy had a religion uh, which made it even easier. Uh, so uh, and that enabled Americans to think, "Well, we are Christians after all, because we 're not muslims <laughs> so so, uh, so so that seemed good but but it turned into such a quagmire that um, they were lost again who 's the enemy uh, we 're told it isn 't the Muslims, and even though we 're're yeah, we're, we're at war with them, well we can 't win, so it 's not a good it 's not a good combat. So uh, along came the Trump campaign in 2016. And uh, somebody discovered that, yes, Russia, for some crazy reason, was interested in what might happen in an American election, just as Americans were interested, more than interested, in what was happening in Russian elections after the fall of the Soviet Union, and were very active in organizing everything, including the economy. but also fixing the elections for Boris Yeltsin. Uh, so we got to that the point where, uh, really, I mean, obviously Hillary Clinton was used, looking for an excuse. She couldn't have lost it on her own. Somebody else must, an enemy, an evil person, must have must have um, <laughs> been responsible for that because everyone said she was going to win. So oh, right. and then she didn't win. So. So that was really embarrassing. So why not focus on Russia? Because we remember back to the 1950s that Russia was a fantastic enemy. It worked. People, it, it, it's, part, it's part of the permanent worldview, modern worldview of Americans that Russia, who, whether it's communist or hyper-capitalist, uh, is, uh, the, is evil and it's an enemy. So. So uh, the, the, the Democrats, I don't think Americans believed it. I really don't. Uh, and, and you can see that. It's, a, it's only the establishment Democrats who have focused on that and continued to establish Democrats and their media. So it's MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post. They, they, they like that. They see that as, wow, that's something people can relate to. We know that Russia is an enemy and should be an enemy, even, as, even if we were there organizing the economy during the Clinton years. Um, and, and they did what we wanted them to do. And they even allowed us, although they resisted, to expand NATO eastward, uh, which is, has created the problems we have today with Russia. So now we have problems with Russia because of our, uh, our attitude with NATO. And uh, and and so and so, it's an enemy, and we can say Russia is our enemy, uh, but it's not a, an enemy in any military sense. We don't have. Although you you can oh yes, well they yeah, they they took over Crimea and they're threatening. They're always threatening Ukraine and so on. And why not B- B- Belarus or Finland, whatever you want. Um, they, they're they the people we think are evil and are trying to do everything we don't want to happen in the world. So it, it, it's, it's a worldview. It's part of a worldview that was created in the 50s. Uh, just to give you, a, you know, a very personal anecdote. In the middle of the 50s, I, I, when I was about seven years old, I guess, um, I you know like any kid at the time, we were told that th- this story that Russia was the horrible ogre, and uh, and I I did I did my own thought experiment as uh, thought experiment, uh, which I remember to this day. When it, it was something which I I considered to be really <laughs> important at the time. I said, okay, they're telling us that Russia. Wants to invade us, and that's why we have to have a nuclear, uh, a a, a more powerful nuclear response uh, uh, than than they have. Um, So, but imagine, I said, imagine Russians did invade the U.S. I'm a kid in California, and I I started to think, well, what's going to happen? We're going to have to, to see Russian soldiers at every street corner, telling us what to do. I said. And I said to myself, but that's impossible. Nobody will listen to them. Nobody, uh, not only because I didn't have any idea what the linguistic problem might be, but culturally, uh, there is no way Americans would take orders. And this is true, I think, of any culture, will simply take orders from another culture unless they actually control the military the way the things I, when Syria, when I was in Lebanon in 1997, the Syrian soldiers, you could see Syrian soldiers at every street corner. Uh, you could see that the Lebanese were indifferent to their presence, but they knew that Syria had um, control of their, their politics at the time uh, because of the military presence. But, uh, but it was unimaginable that Americans We'd just sit around and take orders from russia uh, that, that was my feeling as a kid and it's uh, and, and it's true to this day uh, no, nobody no country can invade America and because they think they have a superior system uh, Im- impose their culture and their their way of making decisions on Americans uh, but the idea that the Russians might be powerful enough to do it was a, a really um, effective means of propaganda in, in, the, in the 1950s and six, and even 60s. The 60s changed a bit with the, 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 the assassination of Kennedy uh, caused an immense disturbance in in the kind of equilibrium that had been developed. But you mentioned Eisenhower, and that's really um, the the most extraordinary thing. And I quote that in the article I wrote today, that was published today. Um, Eisenhower gave the famous farewell speech in January 1960, before the inauguration of Kennedy, where he actually gave a name to this monster that had been created, which included the, uh, the intelligence community, uh, and the media. military and and, uh, and 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 private uh, arms uh, manufacturers um so it's the military nobody had ever heard of the military industrial complex right. until yeah. eisenhower gave it a name and the extraordinary thing and that's what i mentioned in my article today is no president since then starting with kennedy has ever dared to mention that word Right. None. Uh, I, I, you, you might have thought that Eisenhower launches this idea uh, that there's something we should be worried about other than Russia <laughs> uh, and uh, other than the Soviet Union. Uh, there's something we need to be worried about. And when Americans worry, they solve problems and they do something, they invest, they, they, they make sure that you know, whatever it is is going to go away and they can live peacefully uh, uh, forever after. Um, so uh, he mentioned it and you would have thought that Kennedy, well Kennedy actually made some speeches that showed that he'd, that he'd uh, received Eisenhower's meth- message and that he was ta- he was talking about using the UN to uh, enforce peace and, and to outlaw war in a certain sense uh, across the globe, obviously it's nice things to say and everyone approves of it. But uh, but Kennedy and and any and any of the uh, succeeding presidents, I mean, none of them ever mentioned the word uh, military-industrial complex. They uh, they could have said, well, you know, we're doing our best to 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 counter it or or to restrain it or. Or to build it into something that's that's um, acceptable, but no, they, that hasn't happened. And this is extraordinary. And, it, and for me, you know, that's an example of worldview—the worldview that says you can say some words. It's very politically correct. Military industrial complex is not politically correct. Only you know, left-wing critics will will still mention it. Uh, And thanks to Eisenhower, if they hadn't had a Republican president who said it, a conservative American president who said it, they wouldn't be able to say it today. Um, But as I say, nobody, and don't expect MSNBC or NBC or ABC or the New York Times to, to talk about it. They won't.
0: They won't. Because it exposes the, the false divide, right? Exposes yes. the false divide.
1: Well, what we've seen on the contrary is that uh, um, the Democrats, I mean, the, the, and the democratic media have taken to hiring people from the deep state, the intelligence community, as their great experts right. who can elucidate every problem uh, that 's going on in the world today they 're the ones we have to trust the people who as as uh, Mike Pompeo, former director of the CIA said, said we we cheat, we lie and we steal. we were trained to cheat, lie and steal as in the in the CIA um, so we know what the intelligence community i mean you were saying that uh, um, all these people have uh, have lied it 's not just a question of lying it's it's a question of elevating the art of lying into the, um, the method of government. Uh, and that's what we've seen. And that's what we've got. So we need to criticize it, we need to put it in perspective, especially now that things are really falling apart. Uh, yeah, it was very difficult for decades. To, and that's why you couldn't come out and say, well, it's all about the military industrial complex because the problem of that people focus on military but they 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 forget the, the industrial side and that is the that has become the heart of the the core of the economy uh and everything the financialization of of uh, the the corporate economy the um uh, the 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 funding of everything that's military by the taxpayer not by not by Private company is not; it's not venture capitalists who are funding the military. It's the taxpayers, um, and that is going back directly into the pockets of the of the the private investors because um, they're getting everything that the taxpayer pays for, and using it uh, to make a, a further profit. So all these things are very real, and now they're becoming visible. Because, and in some sense, we may have to thank Trump for that because he's made such a mess of it. He, he's he, and he's been willing to, simply because of the kind of person he is, not because he has any mission. Uh, he's been willing to put the evidence in front of the in front of in front of the courtroom <laughs> and say, you know, this is the way the system works. It's corrupt. Uh, uh, he said he was going to fight corruption. He was going to clear the swamp. Uh, but what he's done is sh- shown through his own attitude and his own actions, but also um, by uh, revealing what everyone else is doing, he sh- he's, he's shown how the system works. So now we know, we know that there are elements of s- not just corruption. Corruption exists everywhere. But... Um, profound contradiction in uh, the way the system works to serve itself. And that's where, that's where it falls apart. Because if it's not serving itself in a meaningful way, then people start to see, well, you know, what is this system? And uh, is that what we want? And can we call that democracy? And d- did we vote for it? And then we get to the whole question of what is voting? You know, we're voting for people but the people represent a system we didn't vote for. Uh, you know, when I say people, we're voting for individual characters uh, selected by parties that we don't, we don't know how they work. And um, we have to trust them to, to do whatever they think we want them to do, but they're not really interested in understanding what we want them to do. I mean, I call it, you know, I, in many of my columns, I, I, I picked up the, the, the concept developed by uh, Jean Baudrillard, the French uh, philosopher, right.
0: um,
1: hyper, hyper-reality. What right. they've crea- created, uh, all, of the, all of this, the money behind it, the uh, spectacle it creates the the veneer it 's developed that people believe in and uh, and the whole media oriented approach it 's a hyper reality so it 's something we believe in more than the reality we live with every day but that 's where coronavirus and, and other problems, because coronavirus is is only one incredibly uh, fortuitous sy- uh, symptom, uh, but all these things um, are now revealing how, you know, the, the, the gap between the screen, the hyper real screen we've been taught to enjoy, and that includes, you know, real computer screens, TV screens, movie screens, whatever, uh, and the reality that people, that people face in their daily lives.
0: And the mass media has a lot to do with it. And so does Hollywood, right? Oh, they,
1: they, they, that, they're the essential ingredient. Uh, uh, I mean, you can blame the politicians. You can blame the corporate interests who are going, they're doing what they want to do. But the media, there's no excuse for the media going along with it. And not only do they go along with it, they, they are it, they, 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 make it, they, they, they create the hyperreality. Um, the others tell them what to do and what they would like them to do. And they could say, well, no, well, let's do it a different way, but they don't. And obviously, I mean, you, you can analyze it in all kinds of ways, but um, the fact that uh, any respectable media is a privately funded organization, which requires enormous amounts of funding, but not just funding, but also connections to uh, areas of influence and zones of influence. um, It's a a complex system and it's a powerful system. It's well organized. It's not shabby at all. Um, And uh, they've achieved uh, a power which they can no longer really control. So this is where it gets interesting. Uh, because we're starting to see through the the, the cracks,
0: uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. but we're only starting. Yeah, right. And in and my modest way, I like to I like to treat it as a problem of language, of the way people use language. But it goes far beyond that, obviously.
0: Yeah, and what we are seeing from the left or from the liberals,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: don't call them yeah not the left they are, they are whatever the well, the,
1: yeah they're, they're the hyper real the, the hyper real left it's a left that's been created for us the you know, the democratic liberal sort of uh, mindset uh, which is focused increasingly on on um, culture issues obviously yes it's all of things. it's
0: a very very destructive pernicious form of identity politics yes. that you're bombarded with you know all the time i yes. mean literally i mean people are being deplatformed simply for not being not belonging to a certain race you know it's like you cannot speak about certain yes. things because yes. you're not of a certain race i mean this kind of thing yes. you know and uh, and you're not even you know it's, it's just it's just ridiculous uh, the, to the the levels to which this has been taken, you know. And this whole thing about cancel culture yeah. and canceling people because something they said Absolutely. in high school or in 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 college or you know, I mean, people, human beings are flawed, you know. Human beings are they're not robots, you know, cyborgs, you know. You say things, yeah. you make mistakes, and I of mean. You know, uh, and, like, and cult- culture, yes. You'd have to cancel uh, everybody. You'd have to cancel everybody. You know, all the great and artists and poets, and uh, you know, you'd have to cancel but, them all because they were all very flawed people. You know what I mean? Well, uh, so, you know, what I
1: think is that uh, the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s had an enormous impact. Uh, on American society and american and american worldview it, but it was an impact that troubled that uh, troubled people that uh, uh, troubled people for a number of reasons why it troubled people who wanted to defend the old order or maintain the old order and that, my, i uh, my feeling is that for the last fifty years or sixty years now i guess well, ne- nearly sixty years um, Everyone's been working on ways of neutering the civil rights movement so that it's about everything except racial justice. Uh, it's, it's, about racial, it's about perpetuating other forms of injustice um, and, and making people feel guilty uh, about things that are trivial. Uh, but not feeling guilty about things that that are real, because racism is a real and deep and persistent problem. Uh, The the actual effect on people's lives of how the institutions have uh, organized things to Favor some people and and uh, and punish other people. I mean, the 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 criminal uh, the, the criminal just justice system is a great example, but it's it's just one among many. The race problem is real, but transforming it into an attitude problem of individuals, which is what identity politics is about, It's about blaming individuals for thinking the wrong things, and uh, not even for thinking, because what they think nobody knows. What what they say can be heard. Uh, So you focus on that and you've evacuated the real problem, which is very real, which is persistent and and fundamental. But because it involves the economy uh, and the way uh, people accept for the the entire society to be structured, um, because it, it would call into question the kinds of institutions we've allowed ourselves to develop and depend on. Um, People uh, use that focus on the individual to to make us forget that there is a real problem to be solved. If you're focusing on what some guy said maybe 20 years ago or even last last Friday um, and saying, well, uh, they they need to be shamed, you, you've lost track of the whole real question. It's not that person who, who's, who's, who's created the system. The system is there, uh, and and it has. And one of the means it's using is to get us focused on blaming individuals rather than blaming the system. Yeah, it's, it's a clever. It's a clever operation
0: it's a clever option. <laughs> I, I
1: don't know if it was I don't know if it was marketing people who who, who invented it and and proposed I th- I think it is but P- political marketing people saw that it had some real legs and they they could get it they get it, they could get it to prevent any real change from happening so if you focus on superficial change you prevent real change from happening
0: so let's talk about uh, the elections because that's the hot topic <laughs> now the only the only genuine candidate, Bernie Sanders, you know, he was kicked to the curb in a most disrespectful manner, almost like he didn't even, you know, they let him have his 15 seconds of fame. And then they were like, okay, that's enough. Out you go, you know? And here's Biden. Obama brought him up. You know, Obama said, this is this guy is the right man for America, you know? And the guy's like barely coherent. I mean, you know, he was just, <laughs> I mean, everyone can see what's going on. It's a joke, you know. And, uh, and now you've got Biden. and I don't know. What's he going to do? Okay, so Trump has, he has, okay, he's polarized the country. Um, there's lots of racial acts of violence happening. You know, this whole spate of uh, 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 white cops gunning down unarmed black people and, you know, these horrific episodes of racism. Um, and I don't know if things were better before Trump took office, but certainly <laughs> there has been an upsurge of, yes, you know, these, these white supremacist kind of uh, I, uh, sensibility and people coming out openly now and saying that, okay, yes, we are Nazis and we believe in, you know, that the white people need to reclaim their civilization and and this kind of cultural purity that you see in, in many Islamic states, in Hindu, in India, you know, the Hindu yeah. majoritarian, it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon. So what you call majoritarianism, cultural yeah. majoritarianism. And um, in the United States, of course, and you, you we have evidence of uh, uh, this white supremacist ideology infiltrating the law enforcement in the United States. So these things are happening definitely. Yeah. Um, you know. But now we have Biden, and he's what's he, okay. Trump has rolled back environmental protections. Now that's something that does worry me. You know, because that's a real thing. It's not yes. a trump. It's a real thing. Okay. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, so, and he's got these kids in cages, these, these, these kids, you know, which is another horrifying kind of uh, manifestation of this uh, administration. So these are things that you cannot talk your way around, you know, but if Biden comes to power, are we going to see, are, are the kids going to be released from their cages? How much power <laughs> does he have to enact immigration law? That's the first thing I would ask. Yes. Secondly, you know, as far as uh, this cultural, uh, pu- notions of cultural purity and racial purity, I mean, is Biden going to be able to roll that back uh, to some degree because of his vice president, Kamala Harris? So, you know, what are we looking at here with the Biden presidency? What, what is your uh, take on this? Well, um, the, and sorry, my, sorry, my, my, the no. second part, what happens if Trump gets four more years? Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, if you'd asked me the question a week ago, I might have had a totally different answer. Uh, given everything that's happened with Trump's own case of coronavirus and the apparent effects that that's had on the election, I think it's it's practically a given now that uh, Biden will become president. And it seems likely that he will bring along um, uh, a majority in the Senate, though, how how important, how big that majority will be, uh, as well as maintaining a majority in the House. Um, We don't know, uh, it's impossible to know, and it still is considered a close election. And if it's a close election, then Trump could win uh, and given you know, the volatility of well, you know I would call it the impossibility to uh, to 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 stabilize the any idea that we might have about the intelligence of American voters uh, given the uncertainty that 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 involves I have no way of predicting what the outcome of the election is. Uh, what we have, I mean, what we do know and which is worrying is that, um, the, uh, that Trump has managed to create a climate of civil war where whoever wins uh, will be violently opposed by whoever loses. Uh, particularly if, if Biden wins, you can expect a high level of, of violent, uh, refractory uh, opposition, uh, and not not a, not parliamentary opposition, uh, social opposition to whatever happens afterwards, I- including just the uh, re- re- the acknowledgement of uh, Biden's authority. Uh, and whatever is attempted in terms of legislation. So that's, I mean, we can more or less predict that it will be more difficult than ever to govern whoever the next president is. Um, and if, if Trump wins, of course, he, he, the only way he could win, and everyone recognizes this, is through the Electoral College. So he would lit, win again if he won with a minority of the popular vote. Right. Uh, so that that alone has anyone who is opposed to Trump, including people who didn't vote for either kind of candidate, uh, that alone will stimulate some kind of serious opposition and, and uh, yeah, some, some kind of reaction to whatever Trump tries to do in the next four years. Um, so I I don't think there will be any continuity between a new Trump administration and the old one. But there won't be any continuity if there's a Biden administration, certainly not a continuity with the, the Obama years. <laughs> I can see, I, I mean, it, it, it looks very troubling in terms of the ability to govern. Now, the US is already an ungovernable country. Uh, which has never really stabilized as a nation. Uh, one nation, indivisible indivisible under God. That is um, what everyone s- says in the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, but uh, the, the United States is a, is a plural noun. Uh, and uh, the states, uh, there, there is, you know, in the background, the idea that nobody really has to go along with what some putative leader says must be the way we are unified and governed together. And now, and that's what I think is, we're looking at in, the, in, the, in 2021, really, is to seeing how disunified the US is going to be, whoever the president is. Um, now, what has changed in the last week, if, if Biden wins a clear majority um, in the electoral college as well as the popular vote, and gets a legislative majority. There will be all this opposition from Trump, but there may be some kind of movement to consolidate things towards governability. I should think so. I think you know, a lot of reasonable people would move in that direction. At the same time, Biden will have his own problem. And that is what you mentioned is Bernie Sanders. No, it's not Bernie himself. It's everyone who voted for Bernie Sanders. And they were probably there. I, I, I would agree with many people's analysis that there were more Democrats who would have voted for Bernie Sanders in, in, in just an open election where things were not being manipulated in the background. Um, uh, Sanders would have been deemed a better candidate and one who who corresponds better to the preoccupations of Americans today, and especially of Democrats. And the majority of Americans are for universal health care, for example, but neither Biden nor Trump is, is for it. So this is, this is an extraordinary situation. If Biden gets his majority, uh, The progressives this time are not just going to line up behind him and say, well, do what you think is best. They're going to make a big push and say, um, and I don't know in what circumstances, because they can say, if if we hadn't backed you, Trump would have won. That is supposing Biden wins, of course. If, If Biden loses, Biden's team will say, it's because you didn't so back us sufficiently that we lost, but that—that's another question. So yeah, you've got all these psychological, this psychological game going on in the background, which means my short answer is it's totally unpredictable. But what you can, uh, uh, what you can consider absolutely predictable is that there will be incredible internal conflict within the parties, if there are still parties, because that's another thing. Both parties, the Democrat and Republican, are just hanging on by a thread. The Republican Party has, has had to align behind Trump because he, he's their president, but very unwillingly. And they've lost their whatever soul they thought they had before that when they compromised with Trump. So what will they be if Trump is reelected, and what will they be if they, Trump isn't re-elected? Uh, we don't know. Something strange will happen on the Republican side. The Democratic Party is obviously split. There are the establishments and the progressives. And there's no way of telling how that's going to play out. Uh, I mean, there, there are positions we can imagine will be taken uh, in placing the blame after a loss or in claiming the victory, if uh, Biden wins, uh, and there will be power struggles taking place. But this time, uh, the contradictions are so apparent and so deep. And as you said, Bernie Sanders was, I mean, is, uh, p- people perceive the whole, this whole hyper-real game as one of power politics, and not just of nominating the best person to win. So, having seen that, uh, I think there's going to be a real struggle, and it's not a struggle between politicians; it's a str- struggle between the worldviews of uh, segments of the population. Because we—that's what we're having now—is—is—is is, is fragmented worldviews, which is something that Americans don't like. What American history doesn't like it's always trying to unify around one worldview, which everyone shares I mean, the, the great thing about 911 was uh you yeah, know was that everyone could say ah yes let's wave the flag and we're all united and we're all one and we all believe the same thing and uh, uh and, and that's a, that's a response to uh, the the worry that bush ex- expressed in his in his uh, Political campaign in his two thousand campaign, which was he we we don't know who the enemy is. So we we had an enemy. We could we could unite around our feelings about the enemy and forget that we hate each other. We don't we don't share the same values. We don't believe in the same things. And we understand that people are trying to to to, to screw us. <laughs> uh, so so so, so it's, it's, it's a it's a a, a very complex and conflictual situation. I mean, you live in it. I don't. I live here in France. We have the yellow vests uh, who entertained us for quite a long time. And, and I think they, they shouldn't be discounted because it, it's become a part of the the, the the psychology, the psyche of the French nation today. Uh, we're, we're ready to revolt against Macron. Um and it can happen uh, the only thing is that uh, we're in the midst of a five year term so in twenty twenty two things will start heating up um, and people will start taking sides and positions uh, but in the u s it, it it's it's a i think it's a very dire situation uh, and um, if you ask if you ask me questions like that, what, what, what's going to happen if Biden's elected or Trump's elected? I don't know. All I can say is that it's going to be messy. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Well, I think I'm having uh, a bit of uh, an internet issue here. So uh, let's wrap yeah. it up. And in, in any case, we've okay. gone over an hour. So ideally we don't, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and I've discussed all the main issues and thank you, you know, thanks really for coming on the show. Uh, well thank you
1: Vikram it's great meeting you and uh, yeah, yeah. And it's fantastic this chat. and yeah. I'd love to yeah. have
0: you back on you know Absolutely uh, absolutely and we can because there's lots to talk about so. And there will be more to talk about later Yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and uh, and I will uh, send you the link once it goes okay. online so please right. feel free to share it and uh, and meanwhile, I'll be in touch, you know, with your articles and everything. I'm going to continue. I'm going to go back okay. to the hyper reality piece right now. Yeah. And, and then, uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. And then the next time, I, we can go into the nitty gritty of um, Edward Bernays and uh, you know and Chomsky oh, yeah. and a bit more into yeah. the techniques yes. manufacturing yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The techniques and the actual. Yeah. Uh, methods of doing this so um anyway thank you so much and uh have a
1: okay. Well, wonderful my pleasure. day yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. okay thank take care
1: thank you. okay bye bye Bikram.
0: thanks for listening to the big turtle podcast you can find us on youtube apple spotify and google podcasts follow us on instagram and twitter see you next time